0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz.
1: Bail is refused. You're out of order. If
2: it pleases the court, to adopt this
1: affirmation, please say the words "I do." I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of
3: this offense, this case is dismissed.
2: Welcome to The Wigs, the podcast that explores contemporary legal issues in and out of the courtroom. I am your host, Jim Minns. Side note, we are also the only podcast featuring practicing barristers talking shop. This month, The Wigs tackle two topics. The first is the new, complex and very important High Court decision of Love and Toms against the Commonwealth in which a slim majority of the High Court ruled that Aboriginal people cannot be considered as aliens for the purposes of migration law, and therefore deportation laws cannot be used against them even when they are not citizens of Australia and are citizens of another foreign country. Secondly, the week's interview Sydney Morning Herald Legal Affairs reporter Michaela Whitbourne, subjecting her to searching cross-examination on a range of topics including privacy, defamation law, protecting sources, journalistic fairness and how she finds her stories. Now, some listeners may have heard that the Whigs were going to tackle legal issues arising from the coronavirus in this episode. However, in the context of a quickly changing and very new public health crisis, and in the interest of getting the best up-to-date information out to our listeners, the Whigs have decided to wait until the next episode at the earliest to, quote-unquote, tackle the issue. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please welcome Whig Felicity Graham.
3: G'day, Jim. Welcome again.
2: Uh, Stephen Lawrence. Hey, Jim, and it's good to see you all in masks and gloves. Yeah, well, we've got to precaution up. I mean, you know, the wigs and the masks. Okay, and the gloves. And last but not least, the great Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Oh, my goodness. Oh, lovely, lovely. Oh, wow. So considerate. Before we deep dive into topic one, a quick shout out to a worthy non profit legal education cause. The annual Reasonable Cause Criminal CPD conference is on Saturday, 28th of March, 2020. By buying a ticket, you will be able to complete seven CPD points in one interesting and enjoyable conference day at Ridges World Square, Sydney. Speakers include three Supreme Court judges and an array of leading silks and criminals lawyers. Topics include bail, mental health, the right to silence and much more. Tickets are at reasonablecause.net.au When you spend your money at Reasonable Cause Conference, you will know you are making a difference. Reasonable Cause CPD gives 100% of its profits to Sunrise Cambodia, an Australian-run charity that provides assistance to disadvantaged Cambodian children with a particular emphasis on education. Reasonable Cause CPD has raised over $280,000 so far in support of disadvantaged Cambodian children. A live stream option will be available in light of the current public health situation. And now, for our first topic. Love and Toms be the Commonwealth, the High Court decision, of course, it's on the tip of everyone's tongue, uh, you know, all 3,000 pages of the verdict, we've gone through it, I think we just finished up, and for that, we're going to shout out to Wig Stephen Lawrence, the great Dubbo Deputy Mayor
1: Stephen Lawrence, take it away, Mr Lawrence. Thanks, Jim. Mayor. Uh, yeah, so the High Court has recently... Um, hand down the decision in Love and Toms v. Commonwealth. And I think it's probably the most interesting high court case of the 21st century. Um, it's, it's very long. Um, Love and Toms were successful four judges to three and it's well worth taking the time to sit down and read all of the judgments. All the judges wrote individual judgments, and the judgments are yeah like a trip through legal history, a trip through race and politics. And there's also for people that enjoy judges having um, a go at each other. There's also some good legal sledges in there. Um, High
2: Latin
1: banter. Yeah, in particular from some members of the minority who who took exception to some of the reasoning in the majority and in very polite terminology, but uh, things that us lawyers are good um, at deciphering. Yeah, they took issue uh, with each other. Yeah, so look, turning to the facts of the matter, um, I think a lot of people will understand that... It's about two Aboriginal men who, for various complicated reasons that we'll come to, were non-citizens of Australia, and they fell foul of the very draconian provisions of Section 501 of the Migration Act, which I think we talked about in Episode 1, so we were very topical from the beginning. Um, They then faced the cancellation of their visas and returned to PNG and New Zealand, respectively. And they took this really innovative and unusual argument in the, I think, in the original jurisdiction of the High Court, saying that because they were Aboriginal people, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they were non-citizens and were citizens of two other countries, New Zealand and PNG, respectively, that they could not be deported from Australia. And their basic argument was that when the Australian Constitution gives the Commonwealth power to legislate in respect of aliens, that that does not give the Commonwealth the power to pass laws to deport Aboriginal people from Australia. And so that's the sort of overview of it all. Um, I might just talk now about a little bit about the two men. So Mr Toms was um, born in New Zealand in 1988, became a New Zealand citizen by birth. Like a lot of people, um, moved to Australia as a child, arrived here in 1994. He's um, a descendant um, of the Gangari people through his maternal grandmother. They're an Aboriginal uh, nation in Queensland, I think. Um, He has been recognised as a common law holder of native title Um, through um, a determination that I understand um, is registered and he's one of the registered uh, native title holders. He never became an Australian citizen like a lot of people. Um, Lived in Australia, has um, an Australian child and he fell foul of the criminal law. He was convicted of the offence of assault causing actual bodily harm, received um, a jail term that put him... um, in breach, uh, so to speak, of Section five hundred and one three a um, of the Migration Act, which basically provides that if you're a non-citizen, if you're in custody, and if you've been sentenced to a term of imprisonment of 12 months or more, then your visa is automatically cancelled. Mm, okay. And as people who've listened uh, to Episode 1 will recall, this led to, when it was introduced during the period of the Abbott government, to a dramatic escalation in visa cancellations and deportations from Australia. And we saw increases of a thousand percent, I think in the first year or something like that. The numbers absolutely skyrocketed. Mm. Um, So yeah, it's it's a very draconian provision. There's not anything really like it in comparable countries. If you look at Canada, uh, the USA, the UK, it's much more discretionary. Um, Mm. So really a very draconian provision. Uh, Mr. Love was born um, in 1979 in PNG. Yeah,
2: I was going to ask what, what's Love got to do with it.
1: Yeah, well, yeah exactly. Uh, he's got a lot to do with it. <laughs> yeah, so Mr. Love, um, born in PNG in 1979. Uh, so, like a lot of people, has sort of a mixed background, um, including Indigenous Australian background and PNG background as um, is pretty common up there in that sort of northern Australia, Torres Strait sort of area.
2: But there's a native title claim in there sorry to cut you
1: off. He's not a native title holder, right. uh, but he moved to Australia in 1994. He's a descendant of the Camilleroy people who are up there um, in Northwestern New South Wales, I think think maybe up into Queensland as well. Um, so like a lot of people has that sort of mixed background, but is, um, is recognised at least by one um, elder of the Kamilaroi people as um, a Kamilaroi person. He moved to Australia in 1984, has lived permanently in Australia since then. He's got five Australian children. Mm -hmm. He too, uh, coincidentally, was convicted of assault causing actual bodily harm, was sentenced uh, to more than 12 months imprisonment. He too fell foul of this draconian uh, provision in Section 501 of the Migration Act. He was taken into detention... Same
2: crime?
1: Yeah, yeah. Not the same crime um, in the sense of the same victim or anything. Right. uh, But coincidentally, they both were convicted of assault causing actual bodily harm.
2: Oh, a different, so so different. Yeah, completely unrelated, as I understand it. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Um, it's sort of a noteworthy aspect of the matter because I think people would well understand that um, a foreign citizen who's convicted of murder or sexual assault or something sort of very serious is likely to be deported Uh, but the fact that these two gentlemen were convicted only of assault causing actual bodily harm not to trivialise it but it's towards the bottom of the calendar of criminal offences and were then proposed to be deported I think says a lot about the provisions of 501 and when you just on the quick overview I've given of their subjective circumstances it says an awful lot about our immigration ministers, Dutton um, and the junior ministers, uh, that people like this are in uh, the crosshairs of deportation Mm -hmm. when they're not said to have committed the most serious criminal offences. They have extensive links in Australia, not least the fact of Aboriginality Mm. uh, and their own children being Australian, yet they were proposed to be deported. So it says a lot about our migration system. Um... And, you know, one way of understanding this case, and I'll come to the the reasoning in a bit, but one way of understanding this case is when the executive government embarks on really extreme social policy, then you test the boundaries of the law because people um, obviously resist uh, the imposition of those policies um, on them and they find their way through through to the courts. And one way of understanding the decision is that uh, the High Court has rejected this uber draconian um, approach to migration law. Uh, Certainly they have in respect of Aboriginal people. So when they applied in the original jurisdiction to challenge uh, the cancellation of their visas, they did what's called a stated case where you can state a case to the full court of the High Court. And they will normally do it when a particular case uh, poses a novel issue or an important issue and the basic issue uh, that was stated was is is each plaintiff an alien within the meaning of section 51 um, of the constitution and section 51 of the constitution um, lists a whole lot of subject matters that the commonwealth um, has legislative power in respect of so things that the commonwealth can pass laws in respect of and includes things like external affairs Um, and so on but in this respect includes aliens Um, and that's the head of power in section 51 that for a long time has been said to uh, support the Citizenship Act Um, and basically the long standing case law says that if the Commonwealth has the power to legislate with respect to aliens then the Commonwealth can legislate and say who is and who is not an alien. Right. So what basically happened was that Four of the judges, so the majority, uh, justices Bell, justices Nettle or Justice Nettle, and justices Gordon and Edelman, held that people in the plaintiffs' position were not within the reach of the aliens' power uh, for um, a variety of reasons. But you can sort of distill it down to this: uh, firstly, a recognition that there's a special and unique connection between Aboriginal people. Um, and Torres Strait Islanders and the land and waters of Australia as uh, was recognized in the Marbo decision that uh, the opposite of an alien is not a citizen but a non-alien um, or a belonger to the political community um, that the two sort of common tests of citizenship Citizenship by birth um, or by descent are not the only examples um, of membership of the political community of Australia. Mm. And there's a recognition uh, by the common law of the unique spiritual connection between Aboriginal Australians and their traditional land, and that that um, is not easy to reconcile with the conclusion that an Aboriginal Australian is able to be described as an alien to that land. And the basic reasoning of the majority was to say... That term, alien, as used in Section 51, um, has to be interpreted by the court. It's up to the High Court to determine ultimately what that term means. And they found that an, that an Aboriginal Australian, a person who meets the, uh, the three-part test of Aboriginality that was stated in Marbo and accepted by the majority, is not able to come within the confines of this term, alien. Mm. Um, It's sort of interesting and look there's a a lot of discussion about race um, in the decision and there was a heap of discussion about race in the aftermath of the decision in the media and so forth Uh, but the majority basically said um, Mm. that if you look back to uh, the time of federation and before that it wouldn't have been considered uh, that aboriginal people were aliens Mm. and they certainly looked at the case law that has evolved since which um extended over a period of time um over which australian citizenship was created because at federation there was no such concept of australian citizenship and therefore a different sort of concept of alien and they accepted that that a whole line of accepted case law basically said now that we have the concept of australian citizenship the opposite of a citizen is necessarily an alien so they were cognisant um, of that case law, but they basically said, look, this very unique question has not been posed before, and notwithstanding um, that uh, the inverse or the opposite of citizen has long been said to, to be alien, we think that is subject basically to an exception, and we don't think Aboriginal people are capable of meeting that term alien. Um, so that's the majority. The minority... And again, there are three judgments in the minority, so there's a um, a variety of different thoughts on it. But they basically said, we don't accept that the alien's power is subject to a race-based exception. We accept uh, that line of case law that has continued over decades that says if you're not a citizen, you are necessarily an alien. And they pointed to a number um, of policy problems, I suppose, with... Uh, creating this new category of person who is not a citizen but not an alien, um, also.
2: What was the split?
1: 4 3. Oh, okay. Yep, so very, very close decision. And look, it's an unusual uh, decision from this High Court, I think, in the sense that this High Court has been typified by a lot of unanimous um, um, or majority uh, decisions, and they've tended to produce not simplified decisions, but Uh, sort of readable decisions that manage uh, to coalesce all the different views into one judgment. This is a sort of almost a US Supreme Court-style decision in the sense that they're sort of at each other's throats in the nicest legal sort of terminology, and they're all writing individual judgments that we used to see a bit of um, in the 80s and 90s,
2: certainly. I can't imagine the executive being too uh, keen on this decision
3: Mm. One of the interesting procedural and, and substantive parts of the case that jumped out at me was that as a result of the hearing and the court writing to the parties inviting submissions on whether members of an Aboriginal society have such a strong claim to the protection of the Crown that they may be said to owe permanent allegiance to the Crown, the Commonwealth decided to serve notices uh, under Section 78B of the Judiciary Act alerting all of the state and territory attorney generals to the issue and inviting them or giving them a chance to intervene in the proceedings. Mm -hmm. And the Victorian attorney general intervened and argued in favour of the plaintiff's position, so argued in favour of Mr Love and Mr Tom's position, that Aboriginal persons who are members of an Aboriginal society are not within the reach of the aliens' power because of the recognised, mutual and unique relationship between members of Aboriginal societies and the land and waters of Australia. And it's just really interesting, I think, to see the different governmental positions that exist in our Commonwealth with this Federalist system that we have and... That the other states and territories didn't intervene, and Victoria was the only one. Really? But um, they took a position opposite to the Commonwealth position. Which, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting mm. do you think that's aspect to the case. What What What
2: What, Hi, what do you think, what you think highlights your like? Is that, is that a political? What What do you think is interesting about that? Do you think it's the politics, or or because you know you've got a Labor government down in Victoria versus a Coalition government federally? Where do you think? Is this the perfect storm of politics versus executive versus judiciary? Like, what do you think? What do you think, Stephen?
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got a progressive Labor government um, in Victoria and they have chosen as a matter of um, executive discretion to take a particular legal position, but I'm sure they were mindful of the politics of all of this. Mm. And, you know, I suspect on some level it probably reflects... Uh, maybe a revulsion in certain levels of the Victorian government about the effect of Commonwealth law and policy. Mm. Um, I mean, I could be wrong about that, but you know, these are decisions that would have been made by the, the Attorney-General and the Premier, I would have thought, um, who probably have their own views about these matters. Yeah. Yeah, but the reaction from the Commonwealth government has been quite vicious mm. and... Um, There's been some very strong criticism um, of the High Court decision, some from members of the executive, but probably the harshest from uh, members um, of public think tanks and certain right-wing journalists who um, have professed to be so outraged by the notion um, of race-infusing our constitution. And I find that quite hilarious and ironic um, on a couple of different levels. Uh, It's normally Conservatives who love to honour the original intent of the drafters of constitutions Mm -hmm. and talk about the idea that meaning should be frozen in time and that new interpretations of constitutional provisions or reading in implied rights or freedoms um, is revisionism um, and judicial activism. Yet on one level, this case is the majority taking a literalist, originalist mm. interpretation of the term alien. Right. So there's a bit of an irony there. I think there's a another level of irony in the sense that anyone who is vehemently arguing that the Australian Constitution sh- should be race neutral in its proper interpretation is ignorant of the provisions of the Australian Constitution right. and ignorant of the history of the Australian Constitution because race has always been part of the Australian Constitution. So it is not um, a surprising notion, I don't think, to find that 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 term, alien, was never meant to include Aboriginal people. Mm. Yet the right is all of a sudden outraged about original intent and outraged at the idea that race is part of our Constitution. It was amended. Yeah, the race power was, indeed. The race power was
0: amended Mm. and Aboriginal people's unique status for the most part was taken out of the Constitution.
1: Yeah, but so, still in a terms of in the Constitution.
0: sure, but in terms of using, in terms of the argument that Aboriginal people are specifically dealt with in the Constitution, mm. that's less relevant in light of the amendment, even under an originalist interpretation. Mm. But it's a fascinating judgment, and I spent, I think, probably the better part of about six or seven hours reading it. Um, one of the things that strikes me about the judgment is just the language. The language that's used in this judgment includes concepts like fealty, race, metaphysical connection, (laughs) all that sort of stuff that we laugh at because we don't really use words like that Mm. to mean what
3: they say. I love the word alienage, the state or condition of being an alien. Mm. But it's, it's, it's fascinating. If you go back
0: and read this judgment... And actually apply the meaning to the words like sovereign and so on. What they're actually saying is really incredibly disturbing. I mean, you're almost talking about people like they're like they're objects, and they owe these allegiances, and people owe allegiances. And Justice Keen, who was in the minority, at paragraph two one seven, talks about this, and he he talks about taking seriously the notion of permanent allegiance because I think it's Nettle who probably, in my view, is the most persuasive of the puny judges in the majority. He, Nettle, talks about this permanent allegiance idea. And what Keane says about that is, if you take that seriously, what the majority is saying is that Aboriginal people can't get rid of their allegiance to the Crown, which is an incredible idea that Aboriginal people might not want. Um, It's like their autonomy is constrained in that way, Mm. in a way that non-Aboriginal people's autonomy is not. Mm. And you're kind of left with this choice, either identify as Aboriginal and if you do, sorry, you've got a permanent allegiance to the crown, Mm. or don't identify as Aboriginal, it's the only way out of that. Mm. And that's pretty horrid and it's pretty frightening in terms of questions of equality before the law because you've now created a class of people who are owed allegiance to the crown sorry, who owe an allegiance to the Crown whether or not they want to. Mm. And these are people who historically have been the subject of horrible things at the hands of the Crown um, and it's kind of we're coming in paternalistically over the top and saying, well, we'll look after you and you just owe us your allegiance. Yeah, That's pretty bloody awful from that perspective. And mm. yeah. yeah, so in
3: Justice Bell's analysis of whether or not Aboriginal Australians could meet the definition of being an alien or not. Her said that Aboriginal Australians are non-aliens because Aboriginal Australians cannot be said to belong to another place. And it seemed to me that that analysis, I mean, there's lots of double negatives and non-aliens and all of these kind of different ways of um, defining terms or... In the positive or the negative and so on. But it seemed to me that maybe the better construction is that rather than that an Aboriginal Australian cannot be said to belong to another place, it's that they cannot be said to not belong to this place, although they might also belong to another place in the sense that your identity or your sense of belonging doesn't need to be carved up in this way that if you belong somewhere else, you can't also belong here. People have these mixed backgrounds and, I mean, I don't know, maybe Mr Toms and Mr Love and others in similar situations feel like they have no sense of belonging to Papua New Guinea or New Zealand because... They barely spend any time there or have Mm -hmm. no meaningful connection to the place. But you can, I think, imagine, for example, up in the top end, certain Torres Strait Islanders who might have a background that's mixed Torres Strait Islander and other island nations nearby might have some genuine sense of belonging to both places. Mm. And I don't see how that should... Mean that they can't qualify as a non-alien here where their sense of belonging or the fact of their belonging is a genuine one.
1: And I think that sort of highlights one of the points of controversy or revulsion that some on the sort of conservative side have expressed at the decision because on one view it's this sort of essentialistic idea of Aboriginality Um, And the Australian love to, in every article about the case, show the picture, I think, of Mr Love, who's very fair-skinned. And you could sort of see that they were trying to make a point through their choice of picture about this very fair-skinned Aboriginal person. And I think a lot of people would struggle with this essentialistic idea of Aboriginality in circumstances where as both their cases show they have this sort of very mixed heritage they've got links to papua new guinea uh, in one case links to new zealand they've got a background of mixed european ancestry so the case sort of forces or forced the court to grapple with this concept of aboriginality that has been so controversial in recent times you know you don't you only have to look at Uh, the Andrew Bolt affair in respect of the article that he wrote, all the different controversies about uh, the way that uh, social welfare and resources are allocated and people's disquiet about those things to see this very sort of tricky terrain that uh, the High Court was on. But, you know, in terms of, you know, one's ultimate opinion about these things, you can't deny this concept of Aboriginality you can't. I don't think deny that it's for that community to decide and determine. So to me, it you know it raises kind of tricky questions. But I think the High Court was right to recognise that three part test in Marbo and basically say if that community accepts you and you've got dissent, then you are an Aboriginal person. I think yeah. that's the right thing I mean, for the High Court the to do. The
3: Commonwealth attacked the plaintiffs and the Victoria. AG's position as involving some radical reconceptualisation of the law of alien status, being a status arising... ..the non-alien status could arise from a connection between persons and land. I don't see that as a radical reconceptualisation at all. I mean, people have a connection to place and the importance of country to Indigenous peoples is... Fundamental to the way that community has, all those communities have
2: um, experienced the world. Yeah, but doesn't this particular case completely uh, address all the issues that weren't addressed in Marbo? Because essentially, Marbo is a title, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a right to title case, or or became the Native Title Act through legislation. But this is addressing. <laughs> Identification, Evil. yeah. I mean, this is this is everything that Mabo didn't touch on. So it's almost like what Manny said, but back to, you know, owe allegiance to the crown, yet, you know, Mabo sort of danced around that well, and this inter-
0: addressed it head on. It's interesting. that So in Mabo, they found that there was effectively a common law title that subsisted. native title right so it's still within the regime of the crown it's still there it's still under the current system Mm -hmm. but there was it's there was an extant title that the common law recognized right in this case in part and i think nettle kind of almost gets to this or gets to this there's an existing common law of what how Aboriginal people determine their connection to the land and determine their connection to this place and determine their connection to the community, right? So what's interesting about that is you can abolish... The government tomorrow can say all native title is extinguished full stop. They can pass a law that says that and all they have to do is pay everybody out, which would be an enormous sum of money, potentially whatever. There's a whole regime that deals with that. They could, however, pass a law, and Nettle, I think, leaves this open in his judgment. Nettle, who's in the majority... They could pass a law extinguishing the effective, the the common law that allows Aboriginal people to decide who's a member of their community. They could pass that law um, or potentially pass that law and then that law would be extinguished. Now, if you accept that, if you accept that proposition, then why isn't it the case that the act itself, by defining Alien in the way that it has, hasn't already had that effect? And no, I think the answer what, is maybe principle of legality in the sense that if Parliament wants to go that far, they have to damn or say they want to go that far.
3: Under right. what head of power could they pass? Could the Commonwealth pass a law that says Aboriginal communities can't determine menship? Race, power. Men's ship? race, race power. power, race power. Because. But also the alien power. I mean, they they could go Except on. Under this decision, I don't know that they could because this decision is about whether or not the scope of the power, of the aliens' power, extends to effectively being able to define Aboriginal non-citizens as an alien. And the majority's view was, no, that goes beyond the scope of the aliens' power because Aboriginal Australians, even non-citizens, have such a connection, such a notion of belonging to this place that, that head of power can't be used
0: so i think nettle leaves it open
3: Mm
0: -hmm. um i think the rest of the majority doesn't leave that open but nettle Mm -hmm. does Mm -hmm. um and if you take he he doesn't decide one way or another Mm -hmm. um i think he does he says he doesn't need to decide but he raises the possibility of it and so if you take him and the three other judges who are in the minority it's possible um And I have to say, Nettle's judgement is, I think I've said this before, is is in my view the most persuasive of them. Um, He kind of goes through that kind of traditional common law understanding and how common law comes to find the existence of things. Mm. Um, He's the only one who kind of does that well. um, And he leaves it open.
1: Yeah, this discussion sort of raises this question that some members of the minority raise about whether... The majority's recognizing sovereignty of Aboriginal people, and you know, there's a couple of different ways of thinking about it. I think, like on one view, you know, the case is just about the meaning of the word alien, but it's about the meaning of the word alien um, in the context of what was here pre, you know, European settlement, and what was here here at Federation. So they are recognising, I think, in some ways, the recognition of a different political community that has these attributes that mean that a a person who's a member of it is not able to meet the description of alien. So on one view, and the majority's view, it's not a sovereignty case. It's not a recognition of Aboriginal sovereignty. But you can see why the minority sort of labels it as something very close, because it is recognising that there is this other group of people who stand to be recognised in contradistinction from the term alien. So it is giving meaning to that community in a a, um, a legal way, Mm -hmm. even if only through this very technical question of the interpretation of the constitutional term alien. So you can see why it presses all of these buttons in the community about Aboriginal sovereignty um, and those questions. It's already such a complicated uh, case
2: and decision. But, you know, beyond this, what could some of the, I don't know, hypothetical, broader consequences of this decision be, Felicity?
3: Yeah, so there are some other examples that might... Uh, bear upon this question one that comes to mind is the citizenship stripping laws that arise in the terrorism type uh, context and how that legislation might survive this high court in terms of questions about the alien's head of power um, being used to strip citizenship and whether that um, is a valid
2: use of that power. Right, Mm. somebody gets radicalised. They've got citizenship. They are born in another country, but they've got native title. They've got some sort of connection.
1: No, it's more... I think it's more that the essence of of alien um, until this decision... Was a person who owed allegiance to a foreign power, and some of these judgments undermine the idea that an alien is an alien by virtue um, of foreign allegiance. Right. So I think it raises a question about whether you can then use the alien power to strip citizenship okay. from an Australian citizen who also has allegiance to a foreign power, right. because previously that attribute, having allegiance to the foreign power, was considered enough to make you an alien, even if you're a dual citizen. And some of these... It's not clear, but I think some of these judgments start to undermine that notion or that principle.
3: Mm. And then in terms of broader implications otherwise, there's a cohort of people that would fall within the ratio of this case, Um, non-citizen Indigenous Australians who have... Been the subject of a cancellation of a visa under Section 501 of the Migration Act and either are in immigration detention now or have already been deported and might have a right to come back into the country um, or might have a civil action against the government for false imprisonment um, in terms of their detention being not validly authorised by law. So we're talking about a group of people about how many, seats?
1: Yeah, the Australian was reporting that the Commonwealth has identified 21 people yeah, in 21. immigration detention who might meet the criteria, wow. and they're working, I think, in, in conjunction with their lawyers to work out what to do. But in terms of people overseas, I saw one or two cases in the media. I think the father of an AFL football player who's mm. been deported he was raising a suggestion of having um, Aboriginality. Yeah. But I would have thought there's, there's quite a few. And the other interesting cohort is going to be people in PNG, so people particularly in that part of PNG that borders uh, Torres Strait and so forth. Are they going to be able to claim entry into Australia, to claim that the laws that could be used to repel them are not valid in, the, in their application to them, mm. and that I would have thought would be a significant cohort of people. Mm. I mean, it's a slight, slightly different question to this, but but it certainly could arise. Mm. Does this make a
0: treaty impossible? I mean, I know politically it's probably impossible, but does this mean that since Aboriginal people owe an allegiance to the crown that they can't get out of, it's, you can't have a treaty anymore without a constitutional amendment?
1: There's all these different understandings yeah. of treaty, isn't there? I mean, you know, the international law concept of treaty is an agreement between two sovereign states. Yeah. Yet we have state governments signing things called treaties with Aboriginal communities, where there's no real question of two sovereigns agreeing on something. Yeah. So I don't know. I've never understood the push for treaty to to be something that has a lot of substantive legal meaning. It seems to me to be... More of um, a policy prescription, you
2: know. Okay, so how have uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous people responded to this decision?
3: Professor Megan Davis from UNSW has responded to the judgment and, in a short form, has said that the decision reaffirms the deep connection that Aboriginal people have to this land. But she makes a second point that. It affirms, um, she said, that the most appropriate place to resolve the big constitutional question pertaining to my people is actually the political arena and not the courts. So there's obviously a movement on to um, have change to our constitution which recognises their place Indigenous people have in our country. That's been a movement that's been going on for a long time and Megan Davis has been instrumental in that movement. I guess, as always, with these kind of big questions about how we as humans relate to each other, who belongs, who doesn't belong, how we structure ourselves... Often the courts are this really imperfect forum for dealing with those kind of big questions and they are political questions that yeah. require the engagement of <coughs> citizens and members of our community to to resolve.
1: Hard
0: cases make bad law.
1: Yeah, I certainly haven't heard any Aboriginal people criticise the decision. Um, mm-hmm. And all the Aboriginal people I've spoken to about it responded in basically a positive way to it. Mm. I think people... Um, you know, see it as a recognition of Aboriginal people's place and unique place in Australia. Mm. Um, it was interesting. I appeared at the Royal Commission um, into disability about three weeks after this uh, decision or two weeks after and the commissioner uh, did an acknowledgement of country at the beginning and he incorporated some commentary about love into the acknowledgement of no, country. Really yeah, it was really interesting. It was really sort of beautifully done. But, um, yeah, like, I think it's certainly the, um, the most profound way that you could acknowledge Aboriginal people's place in Australia and connection uh, to land and so forth in a High Court judgment that says you can't deport Aboriginal people. Mm. Okay. And only a government as crazy as this one uh, would probably try to do it, I suspect.
0: Well, they may well do it still.
1: Yeah, can they get around this decision? I think, I, I think what we've
0: got is a decision that says you can't use a particular head of power in a particular way and maybe you can if you change the law. Maybe you can't. So there's other powers that they could rely upon.
1: But why wouldn't they have relied upon those in the stated case? Like, why would they state a case, are the plaintiffs aliens within the terms of Section 51? Mm.
3: And only assert that power... Mm. As the basis for the legislative enactment?
0: I don't
1: know. And does Christian Porter have a legal degree or is he just making shit up every day? He certainly does have a law degree and I think he used to be the DPP of WA. If not the DPP, certainly a senior prosecutor um, in the DPP's office over there. Um, There's also an emigration and immigration power in section 51. And it's interesting to my mind why, in circumstances where both of these men immigrated to Australia, that that head of power couldn't be used uh, to then do things in respect of their status.
0: I think they were already here.
1: But they weren't born here, so they must have come here, or they did come here, from New Zealand and PNG.
0: Well, I mean, so they stopped... There was one guy who heard about this judgement and hopped on a plane and came over, who'd previously been kicked out. I can't remember who he yeah. was. Um, but he was stopped at the border and they ostensibly relied on the immigration power, I think, to stop him entering. Oh,
1: sorry. Haven't right. you read the news? See, there could be, for instance, an argument... Love. There could be an argument that, that that sure. power doesn't apply once you're sufficiently absorbed. Like, can you make a law under the immigration, immigration power to deport someone who's been here for 30 years. Maybe it's too remote from the subject matter of that power. Mm. Whereas if you arrive at the door, mm. then obviously immigration immigration's the issue.
0: That's why they've got um, Christmas Island at size, don't they? From the immigration zone of Australia. So you
1: can't lodge a visa
0: application yeah. from there. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. right.
2: I was talking in the third person of the... Yeah, <laughs> I right, forget it. I uh, and also, it. also uh, my Christian Porter <laughs> joke um, just nosedived. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate that. (laughs) Now, here's our interview with Sydney Morning Herald Legal Affairs journalist, Michaela Whitbourne.
0: Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Laws with First Class Honours from University of Sydney, tipped to a New South Wales Court of Appeal judge a year at Mallison's. Um, That's a pretty stellar start to a law career. Uh, How did you end up becoming a reporter after that?
4: Uh, I guess I always had it in my head, even when I was at law school, that I wanted to be a journo, and that's something that kind of really took hold when I was... In high school, and I would have ta- teachers saying to me things like, oh, you'd get a job at the Herald any day, which to me seemed about as likely as walking on the moon, to be honest. I never really imagined that I'd end up working here. Um, but it was always just sort of there in the back of my mind. So while I really did enjoy my law degree and had a really good time doing all the things that I did in the legal profession, and do miss it sometimes as well, Um I just needed to get this out of my system, and I guess I still haven't got it out of my system, really. Um, But I'm really grateful that I did all those things because I I can apply it in my work now. Um, So I've kind of got the best of both worlds, to be honest.
0: Is there hope for you to come back to the law once you've got this out of your system?
4: Right. Just, I don't know. I mean, I do sometimes in court feel like I would really love to be making that argument myself. On the flip side, I am incredibly grateful sometimes that I don't have to stick around for, you know, the next six months or whatever in a long-running trial or, you know, working till midnight every night. But, you know, journalism really has a hold on me and I love it in a way that I haven't really loved anything else before. Fair
0: professionally. enough. Professionally. I think I've seen you sit outside and inside a matter of mine that went on for a few months, and you were there for most of the time. But um, one of the things, particularly for defence lawyers, is that we see reporters turn up for the Crown opening um, and then they run off, or they watch and report on evidence-in-chief, but then they don't watch cross-examination. And we kind of get the sense, or what we see in the papers the next day or on the news is you know the crown side of what's happened the prosecution side of what's happened and not the other side um why does that happen
4: okay well i think there are a few things at play there when you've got a really strong crown opening sort of laying out you know this theory of the case that they have that's often quite compelling and what you have in response is often uh a bit less detailed i suppose it may be no more than My client didn't do this. You know, there's not necessarily a very detailed, you know, account of what else might have happened. So, you know, we'll we'll report on this very sort of compelling or engaging Crown narrative. And then also that this person says that they didn't do this. The accused says that they didn't do it. Um, But you might not have that really nice or exciting sort of uh, pacing narrative about what else might have happened, who else might be responsible for a particular crime, which is totally understandable Uh, But it's not necessarily as interesting to a normal person, and there's not really much else that you can say about that, because you're not supposed to speculate about um, what else might have happened. That's not your job. You just report what happens in court. Then when it comes to things like cross-examination, I, and many other reporters, I don't think have a particular skill in this regard know what's going on with the line of questioning and we we know the kinds of submissions you might be intending to make down the track based on the answers that you've elicited from a person Um, but but the lines of questioning might, might not be that exciting or that capable of being sort of wound into a very neat narrative without putting in a lot of editorializing I feel sometimes like You know, defence counsellors trying to establish that their client wasn't there on the day in question or whatever else. But on the face of it, the questions are not really that exciting. They're certainly building a case. um, But they might not be taking you there in a very direct way without you sort of surmising or telling the reader what's going on by filling in some of those blanks. Um, Then I think another thing that is at play, and I don't think that... I do this. I think I do commit to, to watching the vast bulk of trials, and I know that I've been, in some cases, the only reporter covering, you know, a trial that's gone on for some weeks. I've been the only one in the room for weeks on end. I do think that just um, the lack of resources across the profession in general means that a reporter, even if they're very diligent, can't really afford to devote all the time to covering one trial. In detail, as opposed to you know maybe five or six trials in less detail, so some of that cross examination and other things might slip
0: through the cracks. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, fair enough. I'll, I'll, I do want to talk to you about how your time is chopped up, as it were. But before I do that, um, something interesting happened a few weeks ago in the local court where a barrister was criticising the coverage of or in the Australian Financial Review of a of, that they covered the, their coverage of a particular case. And the reporter stuck their hand up in the back of the door and says, um, "Well, I haven't got your submissions, Mister So and So, and so that's why that's why the article is how, is how it is." Um, so, but one of the things I think, particularly for defence lawyers, that's hard is we don't know how to engage the media. I think there's a level of distrust sometimes between us and the media. And I just wondered what your reflections on that would be and, you know, any tips on how to talk to you guys. Barristers are, of course, limited in what we can say, but sort of tips about that and so on.
4: Yeah, I mean that's really interesting and journalists do always want to get as much out of the court or the parties as possible when it comes to things like written submissions because it makes for a better and more accurate and balanced story. But it can be really difficult for us to get some of those documents. Um, Sometimes the court simply won't give them to us and the parties are, as you say, reluctant to engage and that's no slight on them. I totally understand why in many cases there might not be a really good reason for a lawyer or their client to speak to us and are risks attached to that that might outweigh um, you know, the benefits of doing so. Um, but on the flip side, when there's nothing really constraining you from doing so, it really does assist in um, accurate and uh, detailed reporting. Um, and I think that to the extent that parties are able to, it is good to develop a relationship you know, with journalists. I don't think that you need to be sort of chummy with us, and I certainly don't you know, bowl up to the Crown in a case and ask them to give me a rundown of what's happening in or anything like that. I think that would be a bit um, odd, really. I just sort of rely on what they say publicly in the documents so I can get out of the court, really, for the um, vast majority of cases. Um, But to the extent that you're able to talk to us and explain things to us, I don't think that's a bad thing at all, and I think it really aids in reporting. Of course, there are limits on that. Um, And, of course, you choose your reporters as well, I suppose. You know, if you get to know that there's someone who reports on a lot of matters um, that are sort of uh, similar to the sorts of matters that you appear in regularly, you know, their reporting is accurate and you have a rapport with them, I don't think there's a
0: huge risk attached to that and there's a quite a lot of upside as well, I think. Mm. And off the record is off the record, right? We can You can do that kind of thing.
4: Well, absolutely. I mean, I'm privy to a lot of people's secrets and sometimes... They just, you know, people tell me things that I don't even need to know for my job, but I just sort of file it away in this little filing cabinet in my head, which is that I'm never going to speak about this again. Um, it's a funny job like that. Um, but I think journalists take that obligation really seriously. Um, and we're, we're also, um, you know, very privileged to be, um, you know, privy to people's, um, you know, most sort of stressful or sort of interesting times in their life and reporting on those um you know, there's a lot of responsibility
3: attached to that and it's a privilege as well. Mm. So, Michaela, when you're reporting particularly on criminal cases mm. at a pre-trial stage or even at a trial stage, are you thinking about the ethical considerations that apply in terms of yes. making sure that an accused will get a fair trial, notwithstanding yes. what you might report on? Yeah. So how do you take that into account?
4: Um... Certainly, um, I am sort of given a fair bit of free reign, I suppose, in what I cover. And if I was to say to my bosses, you know, there there are no obvious restrictions on us reporting what happened in open court today. But I can see that if we do, it might create some problems. And I can see that there might also be some applications made later by the accused about whether or not this reporting has affected their ability to get a fair trial. I've certainly done that before, including in quite a high-profile matter that I'm not going to mention. Um where I've just thought, no, if I report on this, there's nothing really to stop me doing so, but I can see that it's probably going to cause problems. And there's really no good reason to do so. I don't think the public interest in a pretrial hearing, um, you know, outweighs the risk of prejudicing that trial. I think it's perfectly fine to wait until the trial to report on the allegations there and, you know, the witnesses that are appearing before the court and that sort of thing. Mm. Um yeah, so I think it probably depends on the individual, but also, you know, every organisation has lawyers who are casting their eye over our reports as well from court and I'm sure they would have a view on some of those pretrial reports as
1: well. So just going back to Manny's uh, question about off the record and so forth, have you ever been in a situation where where a court has wanted information from you that you've been told by someone? And if not, and if you were in that situation, would you be willing uh, to go to jail to protect a source?
4: Yes, I haven't personally been in that situation. But yes, I do take my obligation to respect people's confidences really seriously. And to be honest, if people didn't think I took that seriously, then they would have no reason or no confidence um, in coming forward and giving me information. So it has to be that way. So yes, I would not be willing to yield that information of course you know um it is a problem for journalists that we don't have you know absolute protection in these circumstances um and i'm fortunate that i haven't really been put in that position where i have to consider this in a very real way uh but no no journalist would likely yield that information and uh, my view is that i wouldn't tell anyone who my sources are
0: Michaela, with the with the raids, the AFP raids on the A B C and I think news, um, has there been a shift in mood in, in the media, do you think? Is there is there a bit more fear around that you might get raided or you know, you've got to look you've got to look behind you a little bit more?
4: I think it did ratchet up the pressure on us and the timing of those raids. So we had the raid on the ABC as well as on uh, the home of News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst. It uh, mm. did uh, suggest that there was a degree of sort of planning um, and uh, a desire to uh, send a message, I suppose, uh, so that it wasn't just sort of a random uh Coincidence that these rates happen in close succession. Um, and if the message wasn't being sent specifically to journalists, then perhaps it was being sent to our sources, but likely it was being sent to both. Um, so, yes, I think it did uh, create a great sense of unease about our ability to report on matters of great public interest um, and whether or not um, that our just reporting on matters of public interest is a crime. So, yes, it has it has changed the mood across the profession. And we would be looking for changes to some of these um, provisions, including whistleblower protections, so that we have more comfort that we're able to report on stories in the public interest than we do at present. Um, That said, I think there are other laws that also uh, stand in the way of public interest reporting that uh, sort of are less well, they're not flying under the radar, but they're probably less scary than criminal laws, and that would be defamation laws in Australia. Mm. And news outlets are also pushing for reforms to those laws to make it easier for us to do our job and to defend public interest reports.
0: Do you think it should be, in terms of defo, it should be pretty much anything goes?
4: Uh, No, I don't. I mean, I do take the view that, you know, a person's reputation is valuable and obviously reporters shouldn't have free reign to besmirch a person's reputation when they don't have you know a really good basis for doing so um and i don't think that we still stand separate from other people who can also be sued for defamation including bloggers and people of that nature although perhaps they don't have the same kind of public interest drives that we do it depends on the case um but I think some of these laws are just unworkably difficult for us, um, and, and it sort of operates in two ways. We probably need changes to the law itself, and then we also need, in some respects, probably a bit of a cultural change. So um, some of the defences that are particularly difficult for us to work with are things like qualified privilege, which operates in cases where we're arguing basically like that perhaps a mistake was made in somewhere in a report but we were operating reasonably and the story was of public interest and
3: there's no malice on the part of the reporter or the news organisation.
0: Now
4: that defence very rarely works for us in practice which, in our view, is a sign that the defence is just completely unworkable and perhaps the way the courts are interpreting it is holding us to a standard of reasonableness that is actually perfection. Mm -hmm. So whether or not you need to change the way that defence is drafted or whether or not there needs to be a cultural change is an open question. Perhaps we need a separate defence that is a broader public interest-style defence, but they all need to be worded really carefully, and if they're not, then they're probably going to fall into the same trap as qualified privilege. that defence can also be really hard to prove in cases where we have a great but anonymous source because we're asking the court to trust that we acted reasonably but we can't tell them why and who gave us that information and why it was so good. Mm, So that's a real pickle for us.
3: Yeah. So in terms of a day in the life of a legal affairs reporter, how do you or your editors go about picking the matters that you're going to follow and write about?
4: Yeah, so it's really interesting. So um, we obviously trawl the court lists uh, the night before so we're looking for matters that we've never really seen before that might just leap out at us that might be sort of a high profile plaintiff or defended or accused that we've never heard of before or things that we know have been on the boil for a long time because police have told us the charges have been laid against someone or it's a long-running matter so we do that every night so we know what's coming up um and then obviously things just uh sort of come up during the day so you know someone might file something in the central court or whatever else and we just have to you know run and get documents and that and break that story immediately. Um, all the reporters that cover courts at the Herald, for example, have a fairly high degree of autonomy in what they cover. So, of course, we're telling our bosses every day, these are the things that are in court, these are what we think are the most high-profile matters, and then perhaps our editors will disagree and say, no, perhaps go there. But in most cases, we'll trust our judgement on that, which is really good. Um, and then we sort of divide up the cases according to who's sort of best place to cover or something or has a particular interest in it. So, I tend to do sort of more white-collar crime matters, legal policy, things like defamation. I don't do a lot of violent crime. I do a lot of corruption-related matters. Um, if this has kind of fallen out that way, theres hasn't really ever been in discussion about that. Um, but it's a job with a high degree of autonomy um, and not a very high degree of certainty. So, you know, you get some idea from the court list about what you might be doing the next day, but there are always things that just happen during the course of the day. Mm. So um, at the moment, of course, with a coronavirus being, you know, sort of the topic on everyone's lips, I filed a story today, for example, about um, the Supreme Court's new approach uh, to minimising the spread of that virus, which is to obviously discourage lawyers from coming to court as much as possible.
3: And we're not Um, going to be allowed water at the bar table anymore, which is something that... Yeah, I drink so much water in court.
0: I bet it never comes back to...
3: Yeah, they've removed the Supreme Court all uh, water jugs and cups from the t- bar table. Is
1: that because people might share them? I don't know. So I they've been wanting to do it for years.
0: No, I won't say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really
4: quite funny. I yeah. should have put that in my story. Yeah. Good yeah. tip.
0: Thank yeah. you. Um, so in terms of tips, so there's no impediment to some lawyer ringing you up and saying, hey, look, I've got this matter that might be of interest to you listed tomorrow.
4: No, and of course, lawyers do do that. Um, And I'm very grateful to them for doing so. And it's never apparent how I know this information and that's the way it should be. And it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, you know, open justice is a real thing and it's very important. And so it doesn't really matter how I find out that something's in court. It's there and I should be able to wander into any court, really, unless it's closed. So,
3: yes. Yeah, so there was um, some controversy a couple of years ago, particularly in Victoria, where there was some criticism of the media coverage of um, particularly young African guys in and around Melbourne. And you might remember the Victorian County Court Chief Judge, Peter Kidd, said, if you are an African offender and certainly if you're an African youth of South Sudanese background from the western suburbs of Melbourne, rest assured your case will be reported on. The media choose to report on those cases. That creates an impression that a very significant proportion of our work is taken up with African youths from the western suburbs of Melbourne. That's a false impression. And the ABC reported on um, his honour's comments and there was other reporting around that time concerned with those types of cases. So is there any kind of systemic approach to making sure that your reporting doesn't fall into the traps of giving these false impressions? So do you have some kind of auditing process or some kind of process of making sure that you're not misrepresenting by way of the sort of overall reporting approach um, issues relating to levels of crime in the community or types of criminal behaviour by particular groups and so on?
4: Mm, That's an interesting question. I think maybe that sits outside a newsroom proper. I mean, I would have concerns about that if I thought it was going on. I don't think that we're over-representing a particular type of crime necessarily. I mean, people could make a complaint probably to bodies like the press council if they thought that was happening. So there could be sort of an accountability mechanism there. Um, I mean... Working at the Herald, I think that we do report fairly consistency on sort of trends in crimes and things like that, so on boxer figures that show that particular sort of categories of crime are falling. I think, you know, it is natural for us to report on high profile or particularly shocking crimes, which might tend to suggest that they happen more often than one might think, but... Does that mean that we shouldn't be reporting on those high-profile or shocking crimes? Not really. And should we be mentioning in every story that, by the way, overall the rates of this category of crime are quite low overall? I suppose that we could do that, but it would probably mean that something else of interest in the story might be cut out um, if strict word limits are being observed. So I take your point, uh, and I think there probably are mechanisms that sit outside a particular news organisation for keeping an eye on that. And I think that individual journalists do turn their minds to that, and I certainly do. I wouldn't want to create that kind of impression in the minds of readers.
0: Mm. So it's trite to say, I think, that there's a lot of pressure on traditional media and newsrooms and things like that, and, you know, any three idiots with a producer can put a podcast together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, you know, so uh, it is... What's the sense? Is there a sense about that in in sort of what one might call the legacy media about that kind of thing?
4: Oh, the legacy media. That hurts (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Twist that knife. The other one I really like is the MSM, when people call us the mainstream media, usually when they're saying that we have not been reporting on an issue, that we definitely have. Um, But anyway, I am quite excited, actually, by new players, as it were, popping up in the media, so people making podcasts and even um, relatively new newspapers like the Saturday paper, I just think competition is good and makes us better and that was exactly what I thought when the Saturday paper launched. This is great, like it's good to have someone else around to keep us on our toes and I think they're a very different sort of publication to the Herald anyway, we're covering different sort of things in a different way. I think there's space for everybody and it makes everybody better. I don't really want to be in a situation where there are only one or two voices in the media landscape. for more the merrier, to be honest.
1: Mm. So what's your view, Michaela, about um, these proposals that get raised from time to time, uh, particularly in the context of uh, newspapers going digital, that people should have the right to have their names removed from stories at some point, or that, that stories shouldn't sort of stay up forever, and that people... Who have the misfortune of having a story about them will suffer sort of lifelong consequences now that everything's digital whereas in the past they might have appeared in the particular sort of newspaper of the day but it's not uh, it's not accessible
4: Yes, uh, this so this is the so-called right to be forgotten. Mm. I totally understand where people are coming from, and it is something to grapple with in a digital age. So I guess it does. I do have a sense of unease about it in some cases. So um, I've sort of been privy to sort of some requests where people have wanted their name to be taken down, or stories about their conviction taken down once they're on parole, or um, that their sentence has been served. And I don't necessarily think that um, because you've done your time for a particular crime that a story should be taken down immediately. I don't know if we need to think about whether or not that could happen after... A time, I don't know. These are very controversial issues. Mm. And I think that ordinary people would have a degree of unease about scrubbing all of this from history, about people who are convicted of really serious crimes or, or things of that nature. Um, I can see how, in the case of particularly young people, um, it can be very hard to have something like that on the public record for all time. Mm. Um, and I'm I, I, I sometimes quite uneasy about that mm. and do... Um, Turn my mind to the implications of reporting on things
3: like that. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to consider the implications of the internet in the context of like spent convictions and the regime that says depending on the exact circumstances within 10 years or within 15 years Mm. of committing a crime and not committing any further crimes you're entitled to represent to people that you don't have any convictions and yet there's this record out there Mm. that
1: says you do and it's not truly a public record in the sense that you know the question of whether someone ends up um, in the Herald or not is sort of quite arbitrary I mean there's all sorts of interesting and horrific cases that go through the system that for whatever reason aren't reported on so a paper is a sort of imperfect public record isn't it in that sense
4: Yes, I mean, I think that's certainly true, and but, which is not to say that we don't exercise discretion or turn our minds to the sorts of matters that we cover but I agree that um, just by its very nature we can't cover everything uh, things we can't we don't necessarily know everything that's of public interest or have the ability to cover it so yes um, there can be a degree of uh, sort of randomness about whether or not you're in the paper on a particular day or not Mm -hmm. Um, and I turn my mind to those things as well there's certainly been cases um, particularly involving sort of professional conduct matters where a person might be very young um, and I wouldn't really be shining a light on uh, sort of systemic issues and they've already sort of paid the price. Perhaps they're not allowed to be a lawyer or something like that for mm-hmm. a certain time or whatever. And I just think, well, I don't know if I need to necessarily alert people to this in a public interest sense because they've been dealt with um, probably by a professional body or regulator. And I'd just be causing them harm, perhaps mm-hmm. a lot of psychological harm.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so, have you had cases where you'll have a subject of a story or potential story sort of plead with you not to name them? and you've sort of been in this invidious situation of, you know, trying to balance your professional obligations with some sort of sense of sympathy?
4: Yes, or similarly just um, perhaps that they don't want me to mention the specifics of previous convictions or have, have actually come to me directly asking me to remove stories. Of course, I don't have the power to do that. I can simply convey that request. Um It is really difficult. In some cases, it would be quite wrong of me to uh, accede to that demand or request. Uh, And I do think about it quite carefully. I've had examples of that recently and decided not to do the story at all if they only wanted me to um, provide information selectively. Um, And I just think that I wouldn't be serving my readers if I obscured certain facts from the public Mm -hmm. record. Um, But, yeah, I don't think there are many examples where I haven't named someone unless I think that they would be at risk, either sort of physical risk or sort of, um, you know, emotional risk in the form of trolling or similar, Mm. and their name isn't really relevant. Perhaps the reason why I'm reporting on a particular case is that that it explores a really interesting legal principle um, or, for some other reason, the person themselves are really tangential to the story. So it's a case-by-case thing, but it would give me... A degree of discomfort, I think, if uh, people to ask me that often and I wouldn't take to it lightly. Mm.
3: So, Michaela, how easier is it for journalists to obtain primary court material like the tapes of the argument or the hearing or access to copies of exhibits and the transcript and so on? And do you find that courts are sceptical or untrusting of journalists in terms of Providing that material or access to that material.
4: Uh, the interesting thing about this is that it, it is a huge battle for us in some cases, and the rules in different are uh, different in different courts. So mm. your ability to get access to material might be quite good in one court and really bad in another. And the timing of when you'll get access in, can also be really different. Things like recordings, uh, virtually impossible to get those um, exhibits. really depends, you might not be able to transcript also pretty unlikely unless the party wants to give it to you and it's very expensive Um, but obviously If people did give it to us it would really assist with the fairness and accuracy of reports which are things that everyone has an interest in yeah um so yeah so like the federal court is quite good you can get things pretty much immediately after they've been filed if they're um, unrestricted documents so things like a statement of claim um, or defense but you do have to pay you don't have to pay in other courts but the timing of when you get those documents varies so in the supreme court um I, I, i imagine in a to sort of encourage fairness in reporting. They won't give you the statement of claim until the defence comes in. I understand the policy reasons behind that, but often parties will give them to you anyway. And also, you're highly likely to report on a matter in court when it's kicked off. So you've got to go to that first hearing and it would probably be better for you to have the statement of claim in your hot little hands so that you knew exactly what was going on and you're not piecing it together just from what you're hearing in the courtroom that day. Uh, So while I can understand why courts take a different view about when we can have information, Uh, it's sometimes better for us to just have it all in one hit. And if we don't get it from the court, then we'll prevail upon a party to give it to us, and sometimes they do. Um, But it is a big problem for us. Some courts are not particularly helpful, and it does create problems because it's not that we're going to avoid reporting on every matter in a particular court. I really think that um, they're doing the public a disservice by not um, making more information available about cases of public interest in a timely way because that really assists in our reporting and means that we're not trying to fill in blanks or relying on little pieces of information so half a jigsaw.
1: So Michaela um, is it true that there's free alcohol in the media room at ICAC?
4: <laughs> free <laughs> alcohol? I think there might be a good twining tea bag and I became quite addicted to those now I have a bit of a tea habit um, but I've never seen anything harder um <laughs> never said anything harder than a tea bag. Oh, there's some coffee but I'm not sure I would go there. I think if you're after coffee you really need to venture outside the confines of the ICAC media room. It's
1: a very nice (laughs) big room though, isn't it?
4: Oh, it is luxury. I mean, we are used to working in, you know, sort of cupboards or, you know, sort of sitting in the gutter somewhere to file after court. Um, So the ICAC media room really is like luxury on a level you can't imagine palatial. By that I'm talking about plastic chairs and a room that is not filthy Um, but, you know, that's more than
0: journalists expect or probably deserve I'm joking about the deserve bit, more than we expect I'm not sure do lawyers get an anterior room at ICAC no no So no, you're doing better than us
2: hey Michaela just back to legal ethics can we expect a quid pro quo on a write up for the wigs in any Fairfax papers after this interview
4: oh my goodness would that be ethical I feel like I'd be doing a bit of promotion for myself and that's probably just not
2: allowed. We should probably talk about this off the record. OK, yeah. no worries. Uh, this, this interview might be heavily edited as a result, just to let you know. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Yeah,
0: thank you so much.
2: Pleasure. Now for the story of the man behind the Biddington Society. The Whigs could not resist squeezing in a little legal history. Here is Felicity with the tale.
3: Albert Bathurst Pittington was appointed to the High Court of Australia in early 1913 and resigned a month later, never handing down a judgment, nor even hearing a case. He is easily the shortest-serving High Court justice in our country's history. Pittington was appointed at a time when the High Court was being expanded from five to seven justices after the initial establishment of the court as a bench of three a decade earlier. He resigned following severe criticism that his appointment was tainted by attempts at court stacking. Here's the background. In 1911, the Labor government under Prime Minister Andrew Fisher put forward a constitutional referendum Referendum proposing to give the federal government increased power over corporations and industrial relations and to allow it to nationalise monopolies. It was defeated in all states but Western Australia. Fisher, not giving up, held another referendum in 1913 on the same issues but again was defeated. With the increase in numbers on the High Court, the Attorney General Billy Hughes under Prime Minister Fisher took the opportunity to try to stack the court. Fisher and Hughes were looking for justices who would give a broad interpretation to the Constitution of Australia, particularly of Section 51, which divides powers between the federal and state governments. If the Constitution were interpreted broadly, then the need for a referendum might be circumvented, and the Commonwealth couldn't enact laws in the federal parliament as it desired. Attorney General Hughes put feelers out through Pittington's brother-in-law, poet and politician Dowell O'Reilly, to find out Pittington's views on states' rights. O'Reilly was not sure and so sent a telegram to Pittington then overseas. O'Reilly asked Pittington about his views of Commonwealth versus states' rights. It reached him in Egypt on the 2nd of February 2013 and Pittington responded, quote, "in sympathy with supremacy of Commonwealth powers." Shortly followed another telegram, this time from Attorney-General Hughes, officially offering Pittington the High Court appointment, which he accepted. The announcement of the appointment in Australia was met with harsh criticism from both the New South Wales and Victorian bars. They refused to welcome Pittington as a judge. The press launched a strong media campaign against Pittington and also against Sir Charles Powers, the other new justice to the court, also considered a political appointment. Powers took on the job whilst Pittington resigned, never having heard a case. Pittington told Hughes that he believed he was compromised by the pre-appointment telegrams, Hughes, who was widely criticised for trying to stack the court, labelled Pittington a coward and called him a panic-stricken boy. Pittington went on to be, in the High Court, both an advocate as King's counsel and a litigant as a victim in a motor vehicle accident. He was a commissioner in New South Wales for industrial relations and in 1922 he unsuccessfully challenged Hughes in the parliamentary election. In 2010, inspired by his brevity and commitment to justice, lawyers in Western Australia established... The Piddington Society. The Piddington affair in some ways seems remote from the current state of affairs in our High Court. In the decision of love and the Commonwealth discussed in this episode, we can see that the governments which appoint justices seem to have little effect on how particular justices rule in controversial cases. This is surely a good thing. yet the specter of politics is never far away. In the aftermath of the Wick and Marbo decisions in the 1990s, there were vociferous calls for the appointment of Capital C Conservatives to the court. Similar calls have been made in the wake of the Love decision. Fortunately, the possibility of court stacking or court packing seems remote. This is not so in the United States of America, where the Supreme Court is seen as highly politicised and frequently divides on partisan lines. There were open calls for court stacking by prominent contender for the Democratic presidential nomination, Pete Buttigieg. While on the Republican side, there was open obstruction of President Obama's right to appoint a replacement for Justice Scalia. Time will tell if Australia will follow the USA down that
2: path. Welcome back to the Whigs. Oh, it's, uh, it's time to leave with some hope and uh, some uh, faith in the future. You know, coronavirus, be damned. And uh, what, what, what better way to be left with hope than to talk to three depressing egghead lawyers... About uh, how how fun fun things are. Starting yeah. with Emmanuel sharing. what's your fun thing for the month?
0: Well, I booked my wedding. Hey, for, that's a fun for, thing. In a few months, and we've been scouting locations for the um, honeymoon. We're thinking about maybe going to China or right. something like that. Nice. Wuhan, Italy, Italy, sort of I'm glad via Japan. In
3: Milan in early January before it went on lockdown. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? January?
0: Right, so you're a potential carrier. Hello. That's... <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> um, Fantastic, yeah, it? and my fun thing is just doing wedding stuff. Like I'm getting, a, I went and saw a guy to have a suit made today, which is pretty fun. Lovely. It's going to be red or tyrian purple or something like Fantastic. that. Fantastic. Um, yeah. How fun. Yeah. See, this is what
1: I'm talking about, Stephen Lawrence. Fun things. Yeah, so my fun thing is um, a very dear friend of mine is having a birthday on the weekend. Yay. And I'm going to take a whole lot of corona and... Nice. Enjoy the party. And toilet
0: paper.
2: Yeah, mate.
1: Shower him or her with love.
2: Um, Yeah, that's my fun thing. Great. I think that's fantastic. Now, to take our leaf out of uh, these two examples, Felicity Graham, can you please uh, enlighten the Wigs audience with your fun thing? And please make it fun.
3: Yeah, well, it will be fun. Thank you. Uh, Jim, I'm heading off to a movie tomorrow night. Oh, thank God. Backtrack Boys. Oh, it's I'm a documentary going with a good friend of mine who works in the kind of space of monitoring conditions of kids in detention. And, yeah, I think it'll be a really interesting look at um, issues to do with how Aboriginal young people have been treated and targeted in our criminal justice system. Your friend made the film? No, but I'm going with her. That sounds a bit depressing. Is that
1: yeah. fun? Was yeah, that fun? I, don't, I don't think we'll that rates right we'll we'll as fun.
3: Beforehand. We'll get a drink beforehand, maybe a drink afterwards. Fun. yeah.
1: So I went to a premiere of that uh, movie in Dubbo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. You sound over the moon about
2: it.
3: Yeah, yeah he yeah. was
1: there, Bernie. What's his name? Bernie Shakeshaft? <laughs> Who's the guy that runs Backtrack? who was there <laughs>
3: uh, but yeah, like, hang on a minute we can't end the episode before we find out your fun Jim's thing fun Jim
2: thing. Um, so my fun thing is I will continue to um, be brain dead for a couple of months until the next episode of the wigs when I have to pretend like I understand what you guys are talking about now I'm just kidding I bought a, um, a new guitar and I'm just waiting in the mail for it to come okay ladies and gentlemen what a fantastic way to end this episode it's been a pleasure ladies and gentlemen take care we'll see you
4: then thanks for listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes
0: this podcast was brought to you by minimum productions produced by jim mintz